Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. We are embarking on, this summer, studying what may be the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. It's a sermon that many have claimed transformed the Western world. Can we stop for just a minute and pray? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment for your strength, for your mercy, for your goodness. We pray, Lord, that even as we open your word, Lord, that you would bring healing. And Lord, a reminder of who we are, Lord. And a reminder of how important it is to focus our lives completely on you. And so, Lord, as we pray these words, we come to you humbly asking you to speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's an interesting thing because Jesus is the one that gives the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest piece of teaching we have in the entire New Testament from Jesus. Matthew has five of these, of these kind of dialogues throughout, but this is the most well-known and the longest. And it's spoken by a man who said in Matthew 24:35 that, Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. How remarkable is that? If I were to stand up here today and tell you, hey, by the way, what I'm about to say in the next 30 minutes will never pass away. Ever. It seemed kind of ridiculous, right? Because some of you would say, I don't remember them past lunch. I'm glad there were no amens, but I saw some head shakes, all right? Now, I don't remember them past lunch sometimes, right? Like somebody, sometimes it's Tuesday and I'm thinking, I know, what was the, how, what was all that I was doing? And you, you work through that. But Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. When you think even some of the greatest kind of moments of speeches, particularly by presidents in our nation's histories of Washington's farewell address or Lincoln's Gettysburg address. JFK's ask not what you can do or what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country at his inaugural. Well, we know parts of that. We don't know all of that. When Jesus spoke those words, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was an itinerant teacher from Nazareth who grew up in a poor family. And yet the amount of this sermon that you know if you grew up in church, or even for people that didn't grow up in church, know it's amazing. I was tempted today, and we may do this at some point, for my sermon just to be reading this sermon from beginning to end. And when you hear it, you resonate with so much. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, you turn the other cheek. 
No one can serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. No one can serve both God and money. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's amazing the amount of information and just unbelievable teaching that happens in this one sermon. Now these aren't words that are just etched in stone. They are words that are literally woven into the fabric of our civilization. I read an article recently from a man named Tom Holland. And what's interesting, by the way, it's not Tom Holland, the Marvel actor. It's Tom Holland, the historian, all right? One of the things that I read that was fascinating to me is Tom Holland is not a Christian. In fact, he has argued against Christianity. But he was studying the ancient world. And as he studied the ancient world, and particularly he was studying the Spartans, he found out that the ancient world was a cruel world where they murdered imperfect children, where um, women were not treated with any any sort of decency or dignity, where it was not expected that human beings had any sort of rights at all. It was just based on where you were born and what your status was. So he began to search out, and this is a guy that's anti-Christian, how in the world did the world change? How did we get to a Western society where, for the most part, we at least espouse, even though it may not be played out in actual service, that people will espouse that, that human beings are made with rights. I mean, that's in our Constitution. And he came to this conclusion. He said, without Christianity, the Western world as we know it would not exist. He said it revolutionized marriage, it elevated women, that any time you talk about love, tolerance, and compassion, you are talking about Christianity. Now, it's very important to mention here, he's not talking specifically about American Christianity. In fact, he's talking about ancient Christianity. And he says that what came from, where that developed from, was the Sermon on the Mount. And other places where Jesus espoused these beliefs. Even people that aren't followers of Christ recognize the significance of this passage in Scripture. And for the next eight, nine, ten weeks, we're going to look at what he teaches here. And here's what I want to tell you it will not always be comfortable, it will not always be easy, it will not always feel good, but there are definitely things that we need to understand about what Christ is calling us to do. Here's what we also need to understand. This isn't a checklist of things we have to do to get into the kingdom of God. This is the behaviors that are expected from people who are already in the kingdom of God. For those of us that are saved, this is what's expected of us. It's also not a suggestion list where we get to check off the four or five that we like and say now we can go that direction. It is a discussion of what it looks like to follow Christ and to be one of his followers. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying... We're going to stop there for a moment. You can go back just one slide there, Josh. 
We know this is towards the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew is telling us that the crowds were starting to grow, that things are starting to happen. There's some dispute among scholars about whether or not he leaves the crowds and just gets his disciples because it says he came and sat and taught his disciples. Or if he said, hey, let's go up here. I'm going to continue teaching you, but I need a better atmosphere. I need a better place to be able to speak so that they would hear. And so after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. What he's going to do is he's going to set the stage for the rest of the sermon by giving us kind of a preamble, kind of a a modern, in our version, a modern bill of rights, an ancient understanding of here's what it is. It's, It's interesting because it follows a pattern similar to the pattern that we find in the Ten Commandments, where the first couple, the first four Beatitudes, you know, we're going to talk about those today, the first four Beatitudes are describing our relationship with God. And the second four Beatitudes are describing our relationship with other people. And whenever you get into Scripture, what you discover very quickly is this, that they never talk about how we treat other people until they talk about how we relate to our God. And that if we don't have the relationship right between us and our Lord, we will never get the relationships right between us and our neighbors. And I want to be honest with you, I've... I've had this, I've mentioned to you, you know, God, God rearranged some things and, and the way, the direction that I went, the preaching that I did over the last few months. And, and, and I've had this kind of idea for Sermon on the Mount, been praying about it, felt God leading me to do it for almost a year. When I got ready this week to really kind of dig into the first one of those, I've been gathering material, talking about stuff, which, by the way, when you start talking about the Sermon on the Mount, there is no lack of material out there. It's all over the place. I I read one thing that had, uh, this is no lie, it had 62 interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. So I thought I'd just read all of those to you one day. And so I've had this, on this date, penciled in that we were going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. You would have to have been living in a Shelter with no access to anything to know that our world has been in turmoil over the last couple of weeks. About some issues that need to be addressed from a Christian point of view in a way that honors people and honors our Lord. And so this week as I began to look through this, I, I felt this tug, this, this, this almost like I need, to, I need to scrap this. I need to just focus on on the issue of racial injustice and, and how we as Christians ought to respond to that and what ought to happen with that. And I'll be honest with you, that's what, that's what the, my heart was kind of leaning towards. And I just felt towards the middle of the week, God say, if we don't get the relationship right between my people and me, it'll never work between my people together. And here's the thing about the Beatitudes that are awesome is that many of the things that we need to address from a Christian point of view get addressed in the second four Beatitudes. About how we treat each other, about how we as Christians take roles in honoring other people, how we take roles in fighting for people that are oppressed, and how we take roles in making peace in situations where division is. 
But until we get right what is happening in our hearts with the Lord, not in an understanding of a list of do's and don'ts, but in an understanding of who we are in Christ, until that is brought together, it will never be right. What I love about the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a list of things to do. It's a list of character traits to have. Now, all of those should lead to action, but it's important. Because Christians have always come up with their list of things to do in order to make themselves feel better about where they are with God. Some of them are own making, some of them are scriptural. When I was doing my Ph.D. work, um, I wrote a paper on a guy named Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday, some of you may know that name, some of you may not. Billy Sunday was um, an evangelist that was one of the forerunners of uh, somebody like Billy Graham. Billy Sunday was a former professional foot, uh, baseball player, and he, was, he would have just theatric presentations of the gospel. So he would sometimes talk about sliding into home, and he would get a running start on stage and slide. He would encourage people to walk the sawdust trail. They would literally put sawdust out as his meetings and he would boldly call people to Christ. But Billy Sunday also had his list of do's and don'ts. And prominent on his list of do's and don'ts were two things that he said were the scourge of the nation. Playing cards and dancing. I think my grandmother had a direct line from Billy Sunday. Right? We didn't do that in the place. We didn't do that at Granny's. We didn't talk about it. He, he once described dancing as hugging to music. And that was before social distancing was a thing, right? What's interesting is that we look back on that now and we understand that that, that may have been built on some cultural ideas But it was determined by Billy Sunday that this is what is right and wrong. And we may look at that and snicker at points or laugh a little bit. But we have our own list. We have our own affiliations. And we think if you don't line up with those, you must not be a follower of Jesus. And what the Sermon on the Mount does, what he does when he begins to teach, is to lay out for you. These are the attitudes and the actions of people who are in the kingdom of God, who are followers of me. And he starts with verse 3. It's a progressive thing, by the way. It goes from one to the other. In verse 3 he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of of heaven is theirs. Now one quick misinterpretation that some had from this passage of scriptures when they see poor in spirit, the, some of the original translations just say blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then that's not really the understanding of what's happening in here. Although I do believe that scripture teaches us that God looks out for those. He has a, he's a heart for those that are impoverished in general. But here it's specifically talking about a spiritual dimension of our lives. What he wants us to do is to look into a mirror and reveal every part of who we are. The first thing he says is blessed or 
to be congratulated or to be celebrated are those people who understand their absolute destitution apart from God. Their absolute distance from God in their own strength. That we are people who need to have a sense of the powerlessness we have as individuals. A sense of the spiritual bankruptcy that is a part of our lives. A sense of the moral uncleanness that is within us. A personal uncleanness. A personal sin issue. It could be said this way, blessed are those that never try to stand on their own righteousness, on their own goodness, because they don't have any. One of the things that concerns me about the American church when I watch it so many times is the number of times that it sounds like we are moralizing to people based on our own righteousness and not on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now we have nothing to stand on in ourselves. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of us. Y'all know what all means? All means in all our righteous acts. Not some, not the ones that you do in certain ways, but all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf and like wind our sins sweep us away. What I think is interesting about that passage is two things from Isaiah 64 that speaks to the spiritual poverty of our lives. And it is this, that first of all, we are even the things that we do that we think is good, even the things that we do that we think, boy, I really excel there, even the things that we do, man, I'm proud of what I did here. It says, comparison to the God we serve, they are filthy, unclean rags because we have been infiltrated at the very core of who we are by the sinfulness of our lives. And the second thing that is in there that is just fascinating to me is it says, like wind, our sins sweep us away. I think about a leaf or something that's, that's light, that's just picked up and swept away by the wind. That you can watch it and it is completely powerless to do anything about it. He says, blessed are you when you understand the spiritual destitution you have when it comes to your relationship with God. Anytime we begin to defend our own actions, our own form of Christianity, our own decisions, and not base it completely on what Scripture teaches and who God is, we are standing on shaky ground. And he says this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that simply means that those who come to that place of realizing that they have no hope without God seek the one who can give them hope. And they are the ones that will experience and see the kingdom of heaven. The second one he says, Once we realize the destitution we have before our Lord, the second one he says is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word there for mourn is an interesting word because it doesn't mean sniveling. It doesn't mean trying to hold it back. It doesn't mean that moment when you're watching a movie or a television show and it might be getting to you a little bit. You start to 
a little. That's not what it means. It means the full-on weeping, crying, a mess, and you don't care who sees it. And what he says here is this. This is the basic flow, remember? Blessed are those who understand they are spiritually destitute before God and they don't have any problem expressing the sorrow that comes from realizing your distance from the Lord. Twenty years ago, I was not a pastor yet. I was a teaching assistant at a fine arts preschool where I helped kids make pottery and draw and sing. I didn't personally do those things because I can't very well, but I could read a book when they needed me to. And when you work with three, four, and five-year-olds for two and a half years, one of the things you begin to learn are the distinctive cries they have. There's the, I just fell on the ground and I'm embarrassed and I want your attention cry. There's the, my friend took the toy from me cry. But there was one particular cry that was heart-wrenching. I loved working at the Fine Arts Preschool. The Fine Arts Preschool I worked at serviced some of the wealthiest people in Fort Worth, Texas. The nature of it is one they, there's a place that gave me a job. And oftentimes what would happen is those parents would drop that kid off as early as they possibly could, 6.45 in the morning. My job was the afternoon shift oftentimes. They would not pick them up till the latest possible moment they could. And sometimes I'd have to go in and work morning duty. And part of my job, working that 6.45 to 7.30 time, was to separate kids from their parents. Not in an evil way, it's just parents are dropping them off, parents would feel guilty about dropping them off, kids would cling on, you would redirect, we would do different things. And a lot of times you could successfully get them to the blocks or to the Legos or to a book, and they would be fine with that until they realized Mama was gone. And they would find something in a book and they would go, Hey, Mom! Or Mommy! And they would turn and Mama was gone. And when that happened, there was a cry that was unlike any other. It was the mournful wailing of a child who had been disconnected from his parents. That is what's being described here. That mournful wailing of someone who realizes that my Father in Heaven and I are separated because of the sinfulness of my life. That without Him, there is nothing I can do about it. I think of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is standing before the Lord and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he says that he begins to wail, Woe is me! I think about Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 when he hears the reports that come from Jerusalem and he says, I sat down and wept. wept. I mourned for a number of days fasting and praying before the God of the universe. 
And what I think about in this passage is one of the things that as American Christians we often do is that we internalize these, we individualize these things, and it is important to understand the poverty of our own spirits individually. It is important to understand the, po- the, the, the mourning that needs to come out of that individually. But what's interesting about Isaiah, what's interesting about Nehemiah is there's not just mourning for the sinfulness of the individual. Both of them talk about mourning for the sinfulness of God's people. Isaiah, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I what? I live among a people of unclean lips. Nehemiah is not mourning. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem that we know of. He hadn't seen the walls. He's mourning because the people didn't do what they're supposed to do. Now he includes himself in that. But he is aware of the sinfulness of himself and the sinfulness of his people, and he mourns over it. He grieves over it. He doesn't care who sees it. When is the last time you wept over the sinfulness in your life? When is the last time you wept over the sinfulness in the life of God's people? The picture here is literally of brokenness. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I love that picture. It reminds me of the Old Testament picture of God and the description of God that He was slow to anger and gracious. You see, when I worked at that preschool, Kinder Plots, when I worked there, and those kids would be in that inconsolable way, one of the things that I learned very early on in my time there, one of the things they taught me in training was that a child would not be comforted if I stood over them and tried to give them a hug. If I stood over them and tried to lean down like this, the children, that, that's not going to help a whole lot. That what I had to do in order to comfort the child that was crying because of a real need and hurt was to bend down and get eye to eye with them on a knee and comfort in that way. One of the things that's interesting about that training is that if you look at that word for graciousness in the Old Testament, it literally means God stoops down to our level. He comes to us and looks at us face to face and comforts us. And I don't know about you, but if there's one thing 2020 has taught me, I am ready for the return of our Lord. I'm ready. Because I know that the only answer to everything we have going on in society, the only one that is lasting and permanent, is the return of the Lord and the setting right of all things that He will set right. And one of the comforting things it says in that Scripture is that when He comes, He will bow to us in this idea and He will wipe away every tear from our Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Thirdly, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Here's what's interesting. Most of you grew up, that's not the word you have there. Humble is not the word that most of you would have there. What's the word that most of you would would think of there? Meek, right? 
This is the Christian Standard Bible. I love this translation of the Bible. I'm not real sure why they chose meek instead of, I mean, why they stole humble instead of meek. Maybe it's because the word meek carries connotations that we don't like as much today. But here's the truth. It always did. Being humble, being meek, was no more of a thing to be celebrated in the ancient world than it is today. And humility does cast some of that. But the idea here is someone who is willing to be shown the right way. Willing to be trained. Willing to be humbled. Willing to be taught. It's almost as Jesus is close to quoting Psalm 37.11 here that says the meek will inherit the earth. Meekness in their day. This word was used for a soothing medicine or a mild word of chastisement or a tame animal. One of the words that it's used is that there was a horse that apparently could not be broken until one day, and this is one of those things that either is legend or history, Alexander the Great mounted it and it would succumb to his commands and only his commands. And he nicknamed the horse meekness. The idea behind the word is that once we understand the poverty that we have spiritually, once we understand the mourning that comes down, once we wail about that, then we put ourselves under the instruction of our master, of the Lord, and we listen to him and become teachable in the moment. I'm just going to be real honest with you. As I've looked at this this week, every time I look at the Sermon on the Mount, every time I look at the Beatitudes, I get excited about going into that because it sounds so hopeful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mournful. You know, I think, man, these are great words. But then as I search it, the question I ask myself is, am I that? And I can't help but think that in our society... That in my life, one of the areas that I struggle the most is being teachable, is listening, is being willing to have my mind changed. Well, that's not a popular thing today, is it? When's the last time you got on social media and you saw someone honestly say, you know what, I might be wrong about this. I could, I could be wrong. We have entrenched ourselves into who we are, whatever position we have, and we are no longer willing to be instructed or trained. And here's what I'll tell you. Unless we know it all, and we don't, that is a terrible position to put yourself in. At some point, we have to come to our senses. Last night, we had our first family worship, and it was, it was a little more raucous during the preaching moment than this is. Just a little bit. A couple of you were here. It's a little more commotion and discussion. and Not necessarily discussion about the sermon. It wasn't that good. It was just conversation. Um, I think when I got up to eat, one of the pre- or got up to eat. When I got up to speak, it'll, you'll, make, you'll see why my brain did that in a minute. When I got up to speak, um, I saw one of the families afterwards that said um, their, their son, their second child said, goldfish time, like, Preacher's up. It's, you told, probably said, hey, when the preacher gets up, we'll give you your goldfish. Like, now he's up. Let's eat. Let's go. Right? A little more raucous. And I didn't get in. I did the story of the prodigal son. I didn't get in depth with the prodigal son. I didn't explain in that 
place exactly how he squandered his money, for instance. Didn't get into that discussion. Thought that preschool parents probably would have appreciated that. But my favorite moment in the prodigal son, outside of the moment of the father pulling up and running, is that moment when it says, he came to his senses. He realized something was wrong. I have been on a personal journey over the last few weeks just asking the Lord that in areas of my life where I need to help me come to my senses. We understand the poverty, the destitution of our soul. We mourn over it. We weep over it without any concern about who sees or what they see. We are humbled and teachable and ready to listen, ready to hear from the Lord as He speaks to us. And then verse 6 wraps this part up about our relationship with the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus was talking to people, my guess is, who understood exactly what it meant to hunger, what it meant to thirst, in a way that most of us in this room will never experience. Most scholars believe that the average person of Jesus' day would have been malnourished. That if they got one solid meal every day or every couple of days, they were considered privileged. Water was not as easy as turning on a faucet. It was going and getting some and bringing it back and saving it up and having it there. So when he talks to them about blessed are those who hunger and thirst, they're going to immediately understand what those words mean. Now listen, I've never been at the place of true hunger, I don't think. I, we say we are, right? right? We say, well, I'm so hungry right now. I'm starving. Starving. I will tell you this. And I, don't talk about, I don't talk about my diabetes very much, but I'm a type 1 diabetic and have been since I was 12. And I can tell you that when you're diabetes gets out of control, one of the things that happens when it goes high, especially really high, is that there is a thirst that takes over your body that you cannot explain. Your body's trying to wash the sugar out of your blood, literally, and so you are drinking and thirsty and all of that. And I have no idea if that's the kind of thirst he's talking about, someone that's completely parched, but what I can tell you there is in that moment, all I care about is how can I find something that I can drink that will satisfy me now. And when I read this passage, what I get the sense of is that when we get to the place that we realize our complete destitution and separation from God, when we get to the place where we're mourning about it, we've cried over, we have poured our heart out about our sin, we've confessed that to the Lord, where we are willing to be taught, where we are willing to be led, where we are willing to let that happen in our lives, that when that happens, we have a thirst for the righteousness and the goodness of God that only He can satisfy. And we will seek that out with everything we have. I think of the story of the woman at the well who's told that when I give you this, you'll thirst no more if you'll take it. And she didn't quite understand it. But it was obvious from her life that she needed salvation and the Lord brought that to her. 
So those people that realize their spiritual destitution and they mourn with the Lord over their sin and they allow themselves to be put in a place of being taught by Him, in those moments they seek refuge and strength and security and direction in the only place that it can be found. And that is hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God and who He is and the fullness of what He wants to give us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So here's my question for you today. How's your relationship with the Lord? Are you someone that is standing on your own goodness, your own righteousness, self-righteousness? Are you someone that has swept away your sin or swept away the sin of God's people instead of encountering it, facing it head on? Are you someone that's teachable, moldable, can be directed by the Lord? And are you someone who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness? In every moment of your life. I love this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Because it sets up so much else that comes. And over the next several weeks. We're going to work out what that looks like. To live a life dedicated to the Lord. As kingdom citizens of God. But before that happens. You've got to make sure your relationship is right. That means if you're a follower of Jesus Christ that you're asking those questions all the time. Am I doing what God's called me to do? Am I living as God's called me to live? Am I following God? It also means if you're listening today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've never been saved, that today is the day that you need to examine your own heart and to know whether it is time to accept the Lord as your Savior. Today can be the day of salvation. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And our invitation time is going to be different because of the regulations and all that are out there. We're not going to have a walk-forward invitation. It's the first time in my life I haven't done that. When I've had people here. I've done it for the last ten weeks. Nobody's been here. But I'd love to know if the Lord's working in your heart. So if you're online, you can do as you have been before. You can email us. Church, you can... Put something in the comments there. Contact us through that. If you're here today in person, in front of you where you're sitting, and we arrange this to be where the seats are, there's a new connect card. We'd love to know. If you're guest visiting, we want to know that. But if some, the Lord spoke to your heart anyway, you've got a prayer request anyway, you can fill that out. You can leave it in the seat. We'll come by and get it a little bit later. But don't let these moments of hearing these unbelievable truths from the Word of God go without you examining where you stand with Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are, Lord, I am grateful. I know, Lord, that I am not someone that deserves the grace and the mercy that You have given unto me. I am not someone who deserves the love that you have shown to me in my life. 
I'm not someone who deserves for sure the death of your son for my sins. But Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for it. And I'm grateful. And so Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will help me to understand that I am most effective in the kingdom and that my life is the fullest when I realize how little strength and power I myself have outside of falling on your grace and your mercy. But I pray that this week you would remind me again of my need for understanding my complete dependence on you. Lord, I pray if there are ways in my life that I need to come to my senses, that you would show those to me. And Lord, that the cry of a song we're about to sing will be the cry of our heart. Lord, we need you. Lord, I pray if there's someone listening today that's either here in person or online, that you would, that needs to know you as their Savior. Lord, that today would be the day. That they would realize, Lord, their desperate need for you and for salvation. Lord, that they would pray and say, Dear Jesus, I admit to you that I have done bad things and I'm a sinner, that even my good things are not good enough for a perfect God. Lord, I believe that you, Jesus, came and lived a perfect life, that you died on the cross to pay for my sins and that you rose again from the grave. Lord, I'm trusting in you right now to save me from my sins and to give me new life. Lord, we pray that no matter who we are in our walk with you, that we will constantly be reminded of our need and desperation. In Jesus' name I pray.